Um, we're going to be reading, uh, continuing in the book of Judges, and uh, our reading this morning is Judges 4, 1 through 16. After Ehud died, a previous judge, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, and so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. And she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, kind of right in the center of Israel. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. And so Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. And this verse 11, I'm going to... Well, I'm going to, I'll read it, but it's, it's, a, it's a little, it's looking ahead to the end of the chapter, which we're not doing today. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kedesh. We'll see the significance of that next week. Verse 12, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Herosheth Hagoim to the Kishon River. And then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And so Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagoim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Deborah is the fourth judge in this book, and the name Deborah means be. And in God's holy word, where every little thing is written for a reason, I would say every letter, certainly every word, every letter is purposeful and there for a reason. And this is there for a reason. Her, the meaning of her name. This is important. Bees are fascinating insects. I understand there are about 20,000 different species. They're found on every continent except Antarctica. 
Um, they're obviously important in, in the pollination of, of flowering plants everywhere. What do you call a bee that you can't understand? A mumblebee. And I'm sure everyone knows the bee's favorite singer of all time, right? Sting. Stinging is one of the first things, if not the first thing, that we think about when we think and hear the word bee. I'm just curious, how many people in this sanctuary have been stung by a bee in their life? Yeah. Pretty much. Has anybody not been stung by a bee? Okay. Nice. And for some people, if you're allergic, it, it's, it can be very dangerous, right? And I know it can be painful. I've been stung a few times. But the worst or maybe the best bee stories I have are not about me being stung. Uh, one of them is when I was eight and my sister Lisa was four, we were running through the woods. She was chasing me, and I must have stirred up a bee's nest. You know, sometimes they're on the ground or a hornet's nest. I don't know. But by the time she came through, little four-year-old Lisa, the bees were very upset. They were very angry bees. And she got stung, I think, about a dozen times. It was pretty bad. Probably after bees stinging, the second thing that comes to mind is something very pleasant, um, very sweet, right? They're honey. If you remember, Deborah means bee, you're probably going to be able to remember what we learn in this chapter. And you'll see why as we go forward. Um, we see as we read our text the typical pattern of the book of Judges in our verses. When a judge dies, in this case it was Ehud, the Israelites once again do evil in God's eyes. He lets someone oppress them until they finally turn back to him for help. Why they wait decades to call to God for help, we can only guess. Um, it's their, their, their stubbornness. That's how disobedient they were in those days. So after a while, in this case it was 20 years, they call, they wake up, they call to God for help again, and he helps them. He's so patient, and he calls another leader, a judge, another judge, Deborah, as the only female judge in the book, some people think that that's a further indictment against God's people in those days because no men were rising up to give spiritual leadership as they ought to have done. Judge after judge, deliverer after deliverer, incomplete temporary victories and weak commitment to the Lord and this all foreshadowed in this book the need for a perfect deliverer who would come in the fullness of time. Jesus would gain an ultimate once-for-all victory over sin and evil and the enemy of God's people. Unlike God's people, he kept commitment to the Lord, sacrificed himself on the cross, 
rose to life, and he sends his spirit. So unlike these people, we can stay faithful to him in our lives. His spirit empowers us and and fills us with the power of the resurrection. But we're not there yet in biblical history. In the meantime, as God's people anticipate a perfect and lasting and once for all judge, the Lord continues to be their God, continues to teach them. He's continuing to lead them forward. Deborah was also a prophet, we read. And sometimes you hear the word prophet and you think of telling the future. And, uh, you know, like Isaiah talks about Jesus. Uh, prophets did that sometimes, but mostly what a prophet did in Bible times was bring God's word to his people. God's word was not fully written, of course, during Bible times. And the earlier you go in the history of the Bible, and we're pretty early on in the history of the Bible in the book of Judges, but the earlier you go, less and less of God's word had been written down, of course. And so God spoke to his people. He gave his word that we have written through his prophets. A true prophet was basically seen as virtually identical with the Word of God, God's mouthpiece. And that's how God intended it in those days. Well, what we see is that Deborah, meaning be, as God's prophet, his word, comes to the people and has an impact in two different but equally important ways. One is that God's word has the function of stinging rousing God's people when they need that. But God's word is also very sweet and attracts people. We're going to focus on the first of these this week. Barak needed to be stung by God's word. Barak needed a kick in the pants. Everything we read about Barak tells us that he was one of those church members who had never really stepped out in faith. One of those people that we read about earlier in the book who had no battle experience and had never learned how to wage spiritual warfare. Once again, every detail, like with Deborah, in God's word is important. We learn about that he's from Naphtali, he's from Kedesh, his father's name. The original readers, all of those names would be significant for them. For us, they're not. They're just names, places. But So we got to dig a little bit in order to see what's going on, what God's Word is teaching us. Of the 12 tribes, Barak is from Naphtali, and their land was just east of the Jordan River and the most fertile land in all of Israel. People, other Israelites, in fact, referred to Naphtali, that land, as paradise on earth. It was so beautiful. It was so lush. And he was from the city of Kedesh, in Naphtali. Kedesh was one of the six cities of refuge that you may remember God set up in ancient Israel. And this is where people could uh, come for asylum if they needed it. And an example God gives uh, is in numbers, I think, is if 
someone was accidentally, if, you ac- if someone accidentally killed someone else. Apart from the cities of refuge, the way it would work in ancient times, and they're kind of barbaric, uh, if you did something like that by accident, people would hunt you down and slaughter you. They'd kill you. But for, for God, he wanted it differently. If there was an accident, or if there was some sort of perceived crime, but there were certain circumstances, you could flee to the closest city of refuge and receive sanctuary. No one could touch you there as the matter was sorted out. And uh, so it was a way of, it was just a way of justice, obviously. So these cities, by default, were very secure. No one ever dared mess with them or battle them. They were God's special cities. So it looks like Barak probably had a pretty secure, safe life. And more evidence of that is his father's name, Abinoam, which means pleasantness. And, and so up until our text... This seems to have been Barak's life. Pleasant, fine, not much stress or hardship. He was living in paradise in complete security and safety his whole life. And there are Christians like that. Pretty cushy life. No troubles to speak of. They've never had to even step up. And, and maybe a result of all that is they're a bit entitled. Well, I'm a child of God. Of course, life is all good. That's how it is when you're part of the church and belong to the Lord and do your best to be a pretty good person. And and I am. God does all the work to save us, so one might think. So I don't have to do a whole lot except kick back and enjoy the blessings of the Lord and enjoy... Uh, being part of his people. But of course, none of that's the case according to the Bible. We are blessed to be a blessing. We respond with thankfulness. We serve with all our hearts. And what we see is that Barak is about to be stretched and woken up from his inactivity. When Deborah, God's mouthpiece, tells him to take 10,000 men and fight Sisera, who had been terrorizing Israel, he was probably like, who, me? Off to battle? Are you kidding? What are you talking about, Deborah? This isn't me. I've never done this. He hesitates in verse 8, likely because he's scared. He's a bit of a wimp. He needs Deborah to go with him. Or he's just not going to go. He puts his foot down. Deborah goes with, says, okay, I'll go with you. But then says, because of the way you're going about this, implied is due to your lack of faith, due to your wimpy faith, the glory in this victory is not going to be yours. Ouch. That's a harsh... That would sting a little bit. Given all of this, it's very interesting 
that Barak is one of the people listed in that grand list in Hebrews 11 of the heroes of faith. Barak is alongside of Noah, Father Abraham, Joseph, Moses, giants of the faith. Well, how could that possibly be? Well, it's because the sting from God's Word, this kick in the pants, works. And we shouldn't be surprised about that at all. 2 Timothy 3 says, God's Word is powerful and effective. Hebrews 4 tells us that the Word of God is alive and exerts power, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Just ask King Eglon from the previous chapter if a two-edged sword hurts. We see the change that the Word of God makes in verse 14 when Barak's at the top of that Mount Tabor with his men looking down at the 900 iron chariots of the enemy. Deborah says, go. And this time, does he hesitate? There's no sign of any hesitation from Barak this time. No fear, in spite of the very obvious mismatch that he'd visibly be able to see. These 900 chariots would easily be able to slice 10,000 foot soldiers to pieces. But this time he trusted what God said through Deborah. God's word stung him, whipped him into shape, and in doing that, increased his courage. It increased Barak's faith. Barak obeyed. He went headlong down that mountain. And as we saw in detail last week, as he did that, God sent storm, rains, thunder, clouds. And in the midst of all that, Barak, who had not shown much of a spark for the Lord in his life ever, for maybe the first time in his life, Barak was living up to his name, and it, which means lightning. He became a lightning bolt for God in the darkness, and God gives his people the victory. So Barak, like any number of people who maybe have been born and raised in the church, he needed his faith transformed. He needed to move from cushiness and an entitlement attitude in the Christian life to courage and toughness. And the power of God's Word can do that. How awesome it is when someone in the pew, maybe their whole life, wakes up and gets on fire for the Lord and throws themselves into the fight against remaining sin in their hearts and lives and throws themselves into the fight against evil and the devil and starts getting engaged in the church for maybe the very first time in their life. Someone who was born among the covenant people in the church but never really got it. The light bulb goes on and, and, and may, people maybe for whom it's always been about them when they think of the church instead of about others. Maybe someone who never really had a passion 
for the Lord. They know the Lord and they know about the kingdom and what God is doing and salvation, but never had a, a passion and a fire for all of that. People without that passion and fire need God's word to sting them, to wake them up. And that's the most important function of, that's a, an important function of the Bible, to afflict the comfortable out of their comfort and lethargy. As we think of God's word stinging us, and it does, that includes all of us. We all need that. We have to keep in mind that this sting of the word of God is not God punishing us, though sometimes he has to take strong measures to wake us up. It's not punishing us. After all, a bee sting hurts like crazy at first, but the pain subsides in a pretty short amount of time. But God's word never punishes us as children of God. And and why is that? Well, it's because Jesus was punished for us. The ultimate and worst sting for humankind, the wages of sin, is death. It's painful, and more than that, it's permanent. But we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That worst sting of all is gone when you belong to Jesus, if you give your life and heart to him. The sting of God's word to stir us up to greater and more courageous faith is not that kind of sting. We deserve it because our sin, says God's word, is so bad. But praise the Lord, Jesus took that ultimate pain that we deserve on himself so we wouldn't have to experience it. And so the sting now as people belonging to God is more to wake us up as God's people when we forget the amazing work of Jesus. Uh, To wake us up to living in response to what God has done instead of failing to exercise the faith that he went to the cross to win for us. There's another function of God's Word, too, that we're going to see next week in this account. Uh, We read in verse 9 that Deborah says, the honor of victory will go to a woman. Many commentators say, well, that's, that's a put down, that the victory will go to a woman. But as I thought about that, I'm like, well, when, but when has the Bible, when does the Bible ever put down women or women? The Bible doesn't do that. So I don't think when it says that, he's going to give the, big, the victory to a woman, that it's going to be like, It's like a cut down. I think it's more, and we'll see this next week, it's to create suspense in the story. They say, it says a woman, um, and the only woman we've met in the verses so far is Deborah. But we'll see, surprise, it's not going to be her that gets the victory, but someone else completely. And the incredible effect that God's word has on this other woman later in the chapter, shows us uh, another way that God's word is powerful and effective. 
But I want to talk just a little bit, hopefully personalize this a little bit more. Um, The easiest thing to do with all of this is to uh, look around at people in the church and think of people we think need to be stung by God's Word. Woken up. And so uh, we might make a list and then we, we, we pray to God we, what we might do after the sermon. Oh God, I, I'm looking at, at, at Bob and, and Mary and Henry and, and so many others. Please, Sting them with your word. Lord, wake them up. But that is not something we can ever really judge. You know, there could be someone that, to our view, is not super involved, is not super visibly involved in the church. But, but who knows, maybe that person is the greatest prayer warrior this side of the Mississippi. And that person is more engaged in the spiritual warfare and the fight and the battle than any of us. But it's a super behind the thing, scenes thing. Or maybe so-and-so, maybe they're the most sacrificial giver in the history of faith church. And none of us would know that, obviously. But that's someone who's living for Jesus, who's in the fight, who's in the battle. But we don't know what's going on ultimately in people's hearts and their personal life. What we can do from all this is look into our own hearts to see where we need to be jolted and jarred with God's Word. This is between each one of us and our God. And so we're called to pray for God's Spirit to make clear where you and I need to be stirred up today. We need to pray to God's Spirit to sting us in the places that we need stinging so we leap out of our seats and get to God's kingdom work. Thankfully, when we go to Jesus, we can experience His victory over sin and our lethargy and and forgiven for all those times we've been spiritually lethargic, sleeping in the pew as it were. Check this out. If, If Jesus' disciples could be forgiven and go on to do great things after falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus' death, at his darkest hour, when he needed them to pray and, and, and wage that spiritual warfare more than ever before, if they, if they could be forgiven for falling asleep during one of the most intense spiritual battles of all time, and then go on to do so much for the Lord, you know what that means? To me, it means there's hope for any of us. And for all of us, that means we can all be forgiven in our weaknesses and we can go forward in the power of God, excited about serving God and others. We can become enthusiastic about advancing the kingdom of God wherever we go. And we can become passionate about building up God's church, God's people 
right here at Faith in Elmhurst. Thank the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see that uh, your word is powerful and effective. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, with the power of your word, sting us where your people today need to be stung. Wake us up. Stir us up to great work and battle in your kingdom. Make us alive for you and passionate. We pray all these things, asking at the same time each one of us for open hearts, for humble hearts, for prayerful hearts, asking your spirit to do a greater and greater work in each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.